Episode motherfucking 20. Oh, I can't believe we're 20 episodes deep. I am so proud of us. <laughs> I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm impressed. That's a lot of fucking research. Yeah. And if you don't know us, basically, husband and wife, two fishing chairs in his bedroom with a microphone. That's it. After 20 episodes... Carla still has the shit fishing chair. <laughs> if you don't know about the shit fishing chair, I've had it from episode one. It's collapsed on me. It's unfucking comfy. <laughs> and every fucking week, I'm in it. Just buy another. You're f- Honestly, if you could see him sat there, legs stretched out on end at bed <laughs> in nice, newish chair. <sighs> Must be all right being you. It is. Anyway, enough of that debate. Hope everyone's all right. I'm all right. Um, kids have finally gone back to school this week. Yes. Thank God. I love my kids, but I also like time away from them. Silly. <laughs> Dickhead. <laughs> right, so we're at that bit of podcast that's becoming a bit of a habit, which is where we tell you guys what we've been watching on telly. And whether it's good or not. Give some recommendations. It's usually me who does this bit because Carla, every episode, seems to say, oh, have you got some hurt? And then she has nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, uh, one thing we've been watching is The Vigil, it's called. That's Channel One in the UK. Yep. And were it written by creators of Line, Line of Duty? Of Duty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's starring Saran Jones and it's about a suspect death on a submarine but on a submarine yeah that's all i really want to tell you but really check it out it's it's good yep uh the other thing that we watched was clickbait on yeah, netflix we mentioned it in last episode but we finished it didn't we yeah it's all right would you recommend uh yeah give it a watch for it is what it is isn't it <laughs> yeah and the other thing that we watched was deceit on channel four yeah we did now, I'm reading it now, and I can't remember what happened, but it was about Rachel and Nikkel. Yeah, it were about the murder, wasn't it? Yeah, elaborate. Oh, you've just thrown me. <laughs> were it... Where she was an undercover officer, and she was working undercover. Yeah, she was on the phone to the geezer, and she was working undercover, and she was trying to get him... Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yes. She was the undercover officer that was sent to get the guy to confess once you yeah for the murder now it all makes sense <laughs> um sorry yeah that were really good yeah we liked that didn't we that's definitely worth yeah and i've just finished money iced which <sighs> if you haven't watched it's um it's dubbed it's a spanish series but if you can put up with the dubbing honestly watch it because it's brilliant a lot of people rave about it yeah I couldn't cope with it. That's why you've just cracked on and watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a few others. Kerry couldn't get into it either because of dubbing. But yeah, you say it's 
proper good don't you're you? not a tv connoisseur like me all oh, that brew is nice <laughs> oh yeah we've got us brew like usual we stopped mentioning us brew <laughs> didn't we but we always have a brew i was thinking about it earlier i don't know if i'd love you as much as my wife if you didn't make a decent brew we ate a shit brew don't we <laughs> we know a lot of people that make a shit brew uh, main person being one of my best mates, Yummy George. So shout out to you. You know who you are, mate. You and your shit brews. Oh, honestly. <laughs> it don't matter how much I could proper smash a coffee, but I'd just rather do without than ask him. <laughs> and I'm sure he does it on purpose. So we don't ask him. Bless him. Ah, Grace makes an all right brew though, doesn't she? Yeah. But anyway, right, shall I crack on with my case? Crack on. This case... I'm doing is purely because of the amount of media it's had this last few week. It's an old case, but it has been everywhere. And I definitely don't know about it, so I can't wait. I mentioned his name to you, didn't I? And you yeah. didn't know. Um, so, yeah, you'll understand why a bit later, but I'm going to take you back to 1983 and start at the beginning. Take me back. So, on the 21st of November, 1983, 15-year-old Linda Mann set off from home in Narborough, Leicestershire, I think that's how it's said, around 7 o'clock, to go see some friends. So, she tells her parents where she's going and she promises to be back home for 10 o'clock. It's said that Linda was known as a very kind, quiet, but popular and friendly girl. She was very well liked in the village trustworthy and reliable so that night she puts on a coat sets off to see her friends she arrives there at about 7 15. linda doesn't stay very long she then makes her way to a second friend's house um apparently she were dropping in to borrow a record so again don't stay very long and by half past seven she sets back off home now she heads down Forest Road, which led her to a footpath which is known as the Black Pad. It borders the Calton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital and it was well known as the local shortcut. Right, so it's a fucking horrible dark shortcut next to a... Psychiatric hospital. Who the fuck would take that shortcut? Apparently, well, apparently a lot, a lot of, of loop, people. yeah. Not fucking me. <laughs> so, Linda never made it home, as you guessed. Linda's mum and stepdad had been out that night. When they got home around 1am, they found that Linda wasn't there. So, her stepdad went out, started looking around streets for her, but nowhere to be seen. At half past one, they rang the police, reported her missing. On Tuesday the 22nd of November, the following morning, around 20 past seven, an hospital porter was walking to work and he took the black pad shortcut. He found the body of a young teenage girl laying face up in the grass. Her clothes and shoes had been removed and a scarf was wrapped tightly around her neck. Right. So he ran to get help and he managed to flag down um, a passing ambulance. Paramedics ran, um, but she was already dead, unfortunately. This body was then confirmed to be Linda Mann. The postmortem indicated that she had been raped and then strangled using her own scarf. Sperm and blood samples were collected, but at this time, DNA profiling wasn't a thing. Yeah. Only information the police was able to get from them samples was the blood group of the attacker. These motherfuckers got away with so much before DNA profiling. Of course they did. Now, they found that the attacker 
add blood group A, specifically the PNG plus one, which in the UK is actually quite uncommon. Only 10% of males have that blood group. So while it narrowed it down a little bit, it still meant that there were thousands of people that it could have been. Um, They also noted that the sperm count was very high, which then led police to believe um, the attacker were more likely to be a young man. So they decided to focus on any local men between the ages of 13 and 34. A huge police investigation was then launched and Chief Superintendent David Baker were tasked with leading it. Why 13 and 34? Because of the sperm count. Right, so why not 35? Right. (laughs) I'm not a biologist and I don't know what level your sperm has to be at for a certain age range. I didn't look into that. All right. Okay. So awkward sometimes. So anyway, Chief Chief Superintendent... Fuck's sake. Chief Superintendent David Baker started this investigation. Apparently, the whole village, because this place were a little village, um, were completely shocked. It was a really nice area. It was safe. Everybody said it was somewhere you'd be happy to bring your kids up. Apart from that fucking alleyway. No, even this is first incident. They didn't have any crime like this. It's a fucking creepy alleyway. Yeah, granted, but alleyways are all over. (laughs) They are, though, aren't they? (laughs) Anyway. um, So crime really wasn't an issue at all. And apparently that still stands today. It's a really nice, well-to-do sort of area. Even down the alleyway. Fuck off. (laughs) Go on. So this obviously put police under massive pressure to solve it quickly because everybody wanted answers. Mm -hmm. Who's done it? In beginning, there were a few different theories about who it could have been, how they got there and stuff like that. The neighbouring villages is Enderby and apparently this village backs onto the M1 motorway. So the theory was somebody that was travelling through maybe lorry driver you know sort of thing jumped Spur off at moment. yeah but because of this alleyway where she was found police decided that it must have been somebody local and had good knowledge of area to know that it was to quiet. know yeah yeah um so they decided that first job they had to do was basically look at any men that fit into the age range and that potentially were already known as sex offenders Lots of men from the village and surrounding areas were questioned in a massive door-to-door inquiry. There were a few potential witnesses, but once police spoke to him, nothing really came from it. And eventually, this case just got scaled back. Three years passed, and no one had still been caught for Linda's murder. Apparently, in them three years, no one in the village forgot about this murder apparently they endlessly drilled it into the kids not to go through shortcuts not to go out on your own at night it completely changed the way parents treat the kids um because nothing had ever happened like it they were scared yeah and they never imagined that it were going to happen again but it did 15 year old dawn ashworth um, were a typical teenager just like Linda she lived with her parents but in the neighbouring village of Enderby 
Thursday, 31st of July, 1986. Dawn had been earning some extra money during summer holidays and she was working in a news agents. She finished her shift around half past three. She collected her wages and then went home. She'd arranged to meet some of her friends that night, but when she got home, her mum basically said, you can't because we've made plans and I need you to babysit. So obviously it's 80s and mobiles aren't a massive thing. So Dawn just says to her mum, can I nip down to the phone box and let her know that I can come and meet her? Her friend lived in next village, so Dawn thought, I'm going to have time to get there and back before my mum needs to go out. So she's seen walking along the main road that leads into the village by two of her other friends. She then headed along £10 Lane, which again is a footpath. It's very well lit, it's very wide, and it's also used a lot. As you come down this path, you come to a point where it forks off. So you can either go down the more open path, which takes you over the flyover bridge, or you can take the other path, which is undercover, dark, and obviously another local shortcut. Dawn was spotted at 25 past four, crossing the busy jewel carriage at the bottom of this path. She then made her way to her friend Sharon's house, but when she got there, Sharon's mum said she'd nipped out um, she didn't know when she was going to be back. So Dawn decided to walk around corner to Sue's house, another friend, but she were also out. So she decided to just start walking back home the same way she came. And it should have taken her about 15 minutes, but Dawn never made it home. At about five o'clock, there were two men um, working at the industrial estate nearby and the reported that they heard loud screaming coming from Lane, but it was summer holidays, there were loads of kids about, they just thought it were kids pissing about. Fucking hell, and they didn't go check it out? No. At around half past five, there was a man in his late teens seen running across this dual carriageway, almost causing cars to crash. He went up this embankment, which if you go up and over it, it leads you to the M1. He then ran straight across the busy motorway. So obviously a lot of people saw yeah. and were witnesses to this. So they reported it at five o'clock and then he was seen at five. No, no, no. This information only came to light after Dawn's body were found and the right. police put out an appeal for any information. So the sighting of the teenager and the men hearing the screams didn't come out until the police were doing their inquiries. Does that make sense? Yeah, but what I was saying is, they reported someone screaming at five o'clock, mm -hmm. and then he was seen running across motorway at half past five. That's 30 fucking minutes. Yeah. That is a long time. Yep, I agree. Now, Dawn's body were eventually found on the track at around 8 p.m. Obviously, these people then came forward about this information. Just like Linda, she had been brutally raped and strangled. Again, she were naked. Semen and blood samples were taken at the scene and when they were tested, it were the same match for what were taken at Linda's crime scene. So obviously the police knew that the same person were responsible for both these murders and rapes. Yeah. So once again, a massive investigation were launched. Whilst doing their inquiries, there were a name that kept popping up time and time again. And 
That was of 17-year-old Richard Buckland. Pressure's on fucking police now. Oh, massively. Yeah. Two neighbouring villages, yeah. two brutal rapes yeah. and murders. Yeah. 100%. And you've got witnesses as well. Yeah. To this bloke running across the motorway. And screams. It's all a timeline that they piece together, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Richard, he was seen hanging around the crime scene. Um, he was asking police loads of questions. He fit the age profile and apparently he was just acting really dodgy. He even had a conversation with someone at work, basically telling them about Dawn's body and where it had been found and how it would have been laid. So these are things that he shouldn't have really known. Why do why do people want to know that shit? I don't want to fucking know how she was laid, mate. I'm trying to fucking do some graft. I'm trying to read me son, is yeah. it? <laughs> so Richard had originally been questioned the first time round when Linda were murdered, but he was only 14 at the time, so he got discounted, basically. On the 9th of August, 1986... Which is strange, because you said the age range... Well, 13 to 34, mm. yeah, but he was discounted. But go on. So... <laughs> it's thrown me that age range, that's all. We'll look into it after this, we'll give it a Google. Oh, I don't really care that much. I fucking do now. <laughs> You've met me. So, 9th of August, 1986, the police decide to arrest him and interview him. He spent the entire day just swapping and changing his story. He went from he didn't see her at all to he did see her, but he didn't speak to her. Then he did see her and he spoke to her to then the walked together and had a conversation. To then they were walking and a man started following him. And then eventually, he confessed to overpowering her, raping her, and then strangling her. So on 11th of August 1986, Richard was charged with the murder of Dawn. The police took a blood sample and it came back showing that he was this rare blood group. That were it. They thought, perfect. He's yeah. also responsible for Linda. Yeah. You look confused. What were you going to no, say? No, because he's admitted it, aren't they? Yes, he's confessed. Yeah. So they've obviously taken this blood. It's confirmed that it was a rare blood More group. More evidence. Yeah. Now, Richard never actually mentioned anything about Linda when he was confessing. And when they asked her, when they asked him, he denied ever seeing, knowing or murdering her. But yet he'd confessed to Dawn's, mm -hmm. which were quite unusual. So anyway, the police thought, bingo, we've got him. He's got the same blood group. Both crime scenes have got this evidence. So both crime scenes look the same. It's same, same same method of killing. Yeah, the brutally raped, yeah. the strangulation. Now, as this is unfolding, a few mile away, at the University of Leicester, Doctor Alec Jeffries and his team had recently discovered DNA. Obviously, as we know it now, it were a massive fucking breakthrough, and. It completely changed the way in which forensic investigations... It changed the game, man. Of course it did. Now, by chance, the lead investigator had read an article in paper about this. So, he decided that he was going to reach out to Dr Jeffries and basically ask if it would be possible to tell with the samples if it was this person via this DNA discovery. So he agreed and said we can try. So 
there was a sample from there was a semen sample from both the crime scenes and a sample that Richard would was made to give. Yeah. And they were sent off. Yeah. On the twenty sixth of November, the day Richard's trial was due to start, Doctor Jeffries confirmed that with absolute certainty the same person had killed both of those girls, but the problem was it wasn't Richard. Right. Is he related? No. He falsely confessed to murder. Right. Now, Richard might have looked 17, but he didn't have mental capacity of a 17-year-old. And apparently, even when he confessed, his family knew without a shadow of a doubt that there was no way he were capable of raping and murdering because he just didn't have... How it not looked into more? Because he'd confessed. The police were under massive the pressure. Before slam dunk. Yeah. The police were under massive pressure to find who killed these two girls. Yeah. And with an open confession, it's like an own goal, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's not actually clear why he admitted to it. The kind of thing that he didn't understand the consequences to what he was admitting to. It's, and it's honestly unbelievable the amount of false confessions there is. But if we think about it and if we look back on the history of true crime as we know it, these false confessions come from such an earlier time period because of how the police handled things. They were a lot more aggressive. They yeah. sat you in them rooms for yeah. a lot more hours than what they're legally allowed to now. Yeah. Sorry, that was dog barking. So the, they were allowed to get away with a lot fucking more Yeah. in terms of interrogating you. Yeah. I, I've listened to a podcast, uh, I think it's Wrongful Convictions, I'm not 100% sure, um, on Spotify. And I listened to quite a few episodes on Spotify and they blew my mind. Honestly. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people did. False confessions, it's absolutely crazy. But psychiatrists actually believe that after working with Richard, they think that he either saw Dawn's body after she'd been murdered or he could have actually witnessed it happening. Yeah, been there. Yeah. Um, Richard Buckland became the first ever person on earth to be exonerated using DNA evidence in a trial. Wow. A little bit of a fact for you. So this meant, though, that the police obviously were back to square one and... They knew it were a massive possibility that this person were going to kill again. They actually then did what no other police force had ever done before, and they asked any local man living within the villages, surrounding areas, within the age range, they changed it to 16 to 34, to come in willingly and give a sample of blood. Right. If it was confirmed that they had the same rare blood group those samples would then be sent to the university to be DNA tested. See, the thing is, there's no saying it's even from this place, really. The only reason they're going off this is because of the areas in which the bodies were found. Only yeah, local people yeah, would have known. I 100% get. But there's you still... Can't, yeah, there is still... the rest of the fucking UK. Yeah, 100%. So, by July 1987... 4,195 local men had been and willingly give samples. Good lads. 3,556 were eliminated. Some were still being tested and some had even refused to give one. 
The police thought that the killer was more than likely to do one of two things. Either completely refuse to give a sample or he would try and get somebody else to give a false sample yeah. on his behalf. So what they did is they asked everybody that were willing to come and do this blood sample to bring ID. The only ID that they had then, which were photograph ID, were passports. So these passports were nothing like what we had now. It were literally your photo glued in with your details. Right. So it were very easy to unpick it, stick another photo, yeah. and Bob's your uncle. On Saturday the 1st of August 1987, there were a group of men from the local bakery who decided that they were going to go to the pub for a few pints after work. While they were there, 24-year-old Ian Kelly sort of dropped into conversation that he had taken the blood test for 27-year-old baker Colin Pitchfork. Ian said that Colin had asked him to take the test for him because he had already taken it for somebody else and didn't want to get caught and he had only actually moved to the village three weeks before Linda were murdered so it couldn't have possibly been him he's no interest at place is what he said so naively he agreed during this same conversation there were another baker that admitted that Colin had actually offered him 50 quid to do a test for him but he declined and then another colleague said that he offered him 200 but again he declined so how much did he pay that other fucking geezer he's probably cut complete nothing he's took him completely for a mug fuck if yeah. i if i were him i'd be fuming in that pub knowing that he'd offered them money and i've done it for now 200 nicker anyway that back in 80s as well yeah um, so like i said all he had to do was swap photos he was very kind and actually drove in to the test center waited outside to check that he didn't get caught. At this time, the bakery manager, Jackie Foggin, she'd basically sat and listened to this conversation. And at first, she thought it were just men talking shit, but apparently it didn't sit right with her. Why who says men talk shit like? I'm not even gonna buy into it. There's so much I could say. Don't roll your eyes at me. So rude. Any, not all. Um, so it, it didn't sit right with her. So in September, she decides to go to the police, pass this information on. They immediately look into Colin's records. They, they found that he was spoken to in the first inquiries in the door-to-door, but he never really got flagged up as a suspect. They decided to check the signature on his original statement and then check the signature on the blood sample form. And straight away, completely different they knew that they had him so first thing they did is go and arrest Ian he actually confessed to everything told him basically spilled beans straight away I think it's spilled the tea now not spilled the beans everybody's using tea now isn't it what's the tea <laughs> anyway um, so Ian basically confessed and told him everything he then were arrested on conspiracy to prevent the course of justice he actually was charged and given a suspended sentence for two years. Which he deserved. Completely. You know, this wants somebody well, just... I suppose he wants fucking no, but, you know, you've done something and it's a massive fuck-up. You have to fucking hold your hands up and say... Yeah, of course you do. So, police then went to Colin and they arrested him. Straight away, confessed to everything. Confessed to both murders, told her 
he would anyway when asked why he said purely because the opportunity were there during his interviews he explained everything that had happened why has your face changed because he's just a piece of shit alright it's no, nothing personal to you don't worry because <laughs> I know what part I'm coming to and I just think these poor girls yeah Um. so Colin kindly explained he did a lot of fucking talking that on the evening of the 21st of November 1983 he dropped his wife off at a night class around 7 o'clock now Colin had compulsions of exposing himself to young girls and apparently that night it was really strong so he decided to drive around to find a victim that's when he saw Linda so he parked his car up exposed himself to her Linda panicked so she ran down the footpath into darkness Colin actually said that this excited him and then he's decided so I had to chase her he actually blamed her he said that she made the mistake of running into that darkness oh it was her fault yeah obviously you know dirty bastard he also claimed that she actually agreed to have sex with him in the hope that he wouldn't hurt her but he said that she'd be able to identify him so he had no choice but to kill her using her own scarf so the poor girl said I'll have sex with you I'll let you do this horrific thing to me but don't hurt me so then he does it anyway yeah now if that's not bad enough Colin had left his one year old baby sleeping in his car the old time he were doing this just parked up at side at road left his child and off he went flashed his cock when he were done got back in car went and picked his wife up and went home like nothing had happened when asked about dawn he said that after watching her go down 10 pound lane he pulled up again with the intention of exposing himself but just like linda she panicked running away which excited him bullshit he fucking knew you know what's happened don't you the levels. <laughs> we say levels and we talk about levels. Every week. But it's right. Yeah. The exposing himself weren't doing it enough for him no more. It only took that once. I think, and then he, I think maybe he was doing it for him, but then, like I said, he got excited and... He knew he could do more. He, he, he wouldn't want to go back to just flashing his cock. No, that it's, that's, not gonna, that's not going to do it for him yeah. no more. But we know this. Levels, oppo. So, yeah, she panicked and she started running through a gate into a nearby field but he chased her he then brutally brutally raped her um just vile the things that this i'm not going to say the c word person put this poor girl through at 15 it's so anyway he raped her extremely brutally and then he strangled her he actually said that Dawn begged for her life, pleaded for him not to kill her, said that she wouldn't tell anybody if he just lets her live. But again, wouldn't let it happen. Now, Colin Pitchfork was born on the 23rd of March, 1960, to actually a very comfortable fucking family. Nothing in his background would ever make you think that he would turn out to murder. You know, we look at people and there's some telltale signs you know there's the wet in the bed there's sometimes, the animals sometimes there's sometimes there isn't this man nothing yeah like a really really high standard of an upbringing no sort of struggles for parents 
ah, just a proper happy family life, did well in school. And now he's poor family. Yeah. Or, or obviously, the girls' poor family is the poor girls, but his family as well. It's like losing... Their sons are fucking rapists in America. Yeah. And you, it's like losing a child, isn't it? Colin left school at 16. He started working at the Hampshire Bakery, where apparently he was really fucking good at his job. And he he wasn't a loner. He had many friends. Everybody spoke highly of him. Just a... You'd have never have thought. Yeah. He volunteered at the local children's charity. That's actually where he met his wife. They got married in 1981, and then they had their son a year later. Now, when looking into him, he did have a criminal record for exposing himself to young women. His area of choice... I wonder if his wife knew that. I don't know. I couldn't do nothing in terms of... She probably don't want... I don't even know her name. Something like that, I don't know if it'd have been where she had to know or whether he could have hid it from her, is what I'm saying. The second time he was ordered to go seek medical treatment as an outpatient at the Callan Hayes Hospital. Ironic. Colin also very nearly had a third victim called Carol Knight. She was an hitchhiker. She actually got into the car with him and he tried to attack her, but she managed to fight him off. Fuck. And lucky, lucky girl. On the 21st of September 1987, Colin Pitchfork was charged with two counts of con- was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of rape, two counts of indecent assault, and one count of conspiracy to prevent the course of justice. The 22nd of January 1988, after only a one-day trial, Colin pled guilty to all charges except the kidnapping of Carol. He received two life sentences for the murders, two 10-year sentences for the rapes, two three-year sentences for indecent exposure and a three-year sentence for conspiracy, all to run concurrently. He actually originally wasn't given a minimum term sentence, but they soon changed that to life with a minimum of 30 years. In 2009, he appealed and he had his sentence reduced to 28 years. Then, in 2016, Colin and the prison service were getting ready to release him on parole, and he was moved into an open prison. The following year, in November 2017, he was seen walking around Bristol alone, which meant he'd been granted unsupervised day release. As I said at the start of this, it's been everywhere. There are so many petitions currently running all over social media. He's in the news every other day. And that's because in the beginning of June 2021, it was announced that he had been granted parole and he would be getting ready to be released. The parole board described him as a model prisoner, but you know, there's no fucking young girls in there, is there? Or or shortcuts. When he was sentenced, Lord Lane, who was the Lord of Chief Justice at the time, actually said, I doubt he should ever, ever be released from prison. Yeah, here we are. Colin Pitchfork was released only last week. Wow. And is currently in a bail hostel in the south of England. And to make this even more of a kick in the teeth, he's placed besides three primary schools and two nurseries within walking distance. So, as you can imagine, everybody is fucking furious. 
But the thing is, right, where do you fucking put these people? They need to be on a fucking island on their own where they can never, ever harm or hurt anybody ever again. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to shoot them. You don't have to fucking kill them. But do you know what? Get them out of his fucking prison system so taxpayer isn't keeping paying to keep them think, in a nice, warm... I think warm... you need uh, more than one fucking island. Yeah, you would. But do you know what? Fucking do it. As Richard had said, <laughs> put them all on a fucking island. Um, and rightly so, everybody is absolutely furious. Um, who knows? It could be a change man. I but fucking doubt it. That's my feelings on it as well. So that's Colin Pitchfork, ladies and gentlemen. Round of applause. So we'll go straight into mine. Let's do it. Boom. Oh, just let me move a minute because... Right, so mine this week is called the Tida Carbon Murders. Tida family, it's a German name. Okay. So in December 1990, the Tida family planned to spend their Christmas at their beautiful, quiet cabin in the mountains of Utah. I'm assuming that it didn't go to plan. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which they did most years, and I bet that was absolutely lovely oh yeah we love a good log cabin don't we in middle of nowhere so the main man the head of the family is Rolf he was born on 29th of September in 1939 in Germany when he was 11 years old he immigrated to the US with his mother and he met his wife Kay in the 20s Kay was born on the 16th of January 1941 in Nevada and they fell in love Okay. They got married on 24th of May, 1963, in Salt Lake City. They settled in, I think it's a place called Humble in Texas. Uh, they were very big family people, uh, devoted to the religion, and they wanted a big family of their own. First few years of the marriage, they couldn't get pregnant, so they adopted their first child, a girl called Lonay. And three years later, they adopted again a boy called Sean. A few weeks later, after they adopted Sean, they discovered Kay was two months pregnant. Oh, wow. With their third child, Trisha. So, Rolf and Kay were devoted parents. Rolf was a successful salesman. So, like I said, every year the family will visit this log cabin, very remote, a small town in Utah, a place called Oakley. Um, it's said that at the time, in the 1990s, there were just over 500 people. So really tiny. Yeah. The log cabin was four kilometers away from the road. So they had a parking lot where they would park the cars and they'd use the snowmobiles up and down from the cabin. Mm-hmm. Bet that were a right laugh. He was, but all I can think in my head is, fuck me, if you need to escape from that log cabin, you've got some fucking trekking to Secluded. do. Secluded. <laughs> um, 20th of December, 1990, Kay and Sean, which is the mum and the son, flew to Oakley to meet her sister, Kay's sister. So that is Sean's auntie, Claudia. Mm. Rolf, Linnea and Tricia were going to follow on. Sometimes they like to travel separately, sometimes they travel together. Kay, Sean and Claudia loaded up front car and took snowmobiles to take to the cabin. Halfway up, they passed a man in his mid-twenties. Now, it's very cold in this place. It's not somewhere that people are just going to be out and about walking, is it? It's minus 20 degrees. It's very fucking secluded. 
and obviously the Raptor when they see this man in his mid-twenties he's got trainers on he's got jeans on and a completely not prepared completely not prepared kind of like when I want prepared <laughs> for free peaks. peaks but that's another story <laughs> <laughs> so they get to the cabin all unpacked they've eaten everything's fine next day Rolf arrives with 22 year old Lene and 16 year old Trisha Kate told Rolf about this strange guy and she wanted him to fetch the shotguns. Even though it's a quiet town, she wanted to be protected. Something obviously stood out, didn't it? Yeah. I think that it said there were being one shooting in a hundred years, so it's a a very quiet town. Claudia left that morning uh, on the 21st of December, sorry. Uh, So that's the auntie. Yep. She left the morning. Family unpacked, decorated the cabin, wrapped the Christmas presents, all nice Christmassy stuff that you like doing. Went into town Christmas shopping and Sean asked to stay the night at his Aunt Claudia's. So Sean went to stay at Aunt Claudia's. Rest of the family went to Kay's mum, Grandma. Yep. A lady called Beth Potts, 72 years old, and they stayed the night at Grandma's house. So 22nd December, three days before Christmas, at noon, Kay, Beth, and Lene returned to the cabin. Rolf and Trisha had allegedly gone extra shopping. He might have wanted to get his wife. A yeah, bit. a sneaky present. Yeah, a bit of lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> so, on way up to the cabins, on snowmobiles, Lene saw a figure in the master bedroom through the window as they're pulling up to the cabin. She thought it was a cousin, arrived early to surprise her because it were a massive family. Fam- yeah. Lene ran straight inside. She's got her hands under warm tap because obviously it's freezing. Then Lene sees a shadow out of the corner of her eye near the fridge. So she's laughing to herself, thinking it's a cousin. Yeah, messing trying around. Trying to play a trick on her. This man steps from behind the fridge and points a gun at her. He makes Lene shout her mum and grandma upstairs. Another man appears and he's got really thick jam jar glasses. And he appeared, and he held a gun to Kay and Beth. Kay, the mother, pleaded with the men, take anything, I'll give you anything. Yeah. So we've got two blokes now. One's got the jam jar glasses. Yeah. One's got frizzy hair. Yeah. So I will call them jam jar and frizzy. (laughs) I will give you the names, but we'll just call them jam jar and frizzy. So the man with the frizzy hair, no hesitation whatsoever, shoots Kay. She falls to the ground, he points at Beth, the grandma, shoots her in the head. Wow. As Beth is struggling on the floor, he shoots her again, quoting, this bitch won't die. Then they drag Lene into the bedroom, they tie her up, put a dirty sock in her mouth, duct tape over, Um. fucking dirty sock. (laughs) Now jam jar glasses, when they've tied her up, he fetches in the family dog to Lene to sort of keep her company in some sort of weird way. How very fucking noble of him. That'll come back later on. So they go downstairs, they rob the jewellery, the money, whatever they can get their hands on. Then they move Kay's and Beth's body onto the patio and they cover it in snow. So poor Lene at this time is tied up in the mm-hmm. bedroom and she knows her father and sister are on the They're way. They're going to be coming back. Yeah, and she's got no way to fucking warn them. Yeah. So Rolf 
and Trisha pull up at about quarter three. Frizzy held the gun to Linnea's back and Jam Jar pointed the gun at Rolf and Trisha. Rolf and Linnea, it said, held a look and Linnea says that the way she looked at her dad, her dad knew something horrible, horrible. had happened to Kay and to Beth. Yeah. Yet again, Rolf pleads with these two men, I will give you anything, take anything. So then Frizzy orders Jamjar to shoot Rolf, but Jamjar hesitates. So Frizzy goes to shoot him himself and the gun jams and the third time he shoots Rolf in the face. Cool. So then Frizzy and Jamjar <laughs> get the petrol cans for the snowmobiles and start pouring it around oh. the cabin. Uh, it said that they maybe thought about evidence because, get this, before the family arrive, Frizzy and Jamjar are living it up in this cabin. Ooh, let's open these presents. Fuck off. Let's, let's have something to eat. Have a drink. Yeah, and actually, if you go on YouTube, you can see a video of this happening and it is fucking creepy. I will show you after this. So Frizzy shoots Rolf in the back of the head again and he starts pouring petrol on Rolf's body. So they set the cabin on fire. They get Linnea and Trisha, the two young girls, to load all these stolen items that they've stolen from the cabin onto the snowmobiles. And they ride down to the garage on the snowmobiles with the, gu uh, the guns in the back of the girls. So they're on the back of the girls on the snowmobiles. Yeah. As they're going down, the girls see their Uncle Randy and Uncle Randy waves at the girls and they didn't wave back. So Uncle Randy thinks, oh, it's probably just the boyfriends that are just a bit embarrassed. So they load everything into this family car, uh, a black Lincoln town car, and Frizzy and Jamjar are planning to drive to New York and let the girls go when they get to New York. So. These girls haven't got a fucking choice. They're, go, they're, going, they're going with they like it or not. So, Frizzy's driving. Linnea's the passenger. They've just seen what they've done to their entire fucking family. Yeah. These girls probably think that this is all going to end with them two being dead. And Trisha and Jamja are in the back. Now, somehow, the pass on go Randy again. Only this time he's in his car. And he waves and he yells because he sees these two girls, um, his nieces. And Frizzy and Jamjar ask the girls, do you know him? And they're like, no, no, we don't know him. But Uncle Randy is like, mm, summit's not right. up here. So the next thing that happens is this random stranger starts coming towards Uncle Randy I think he must have parked up somewhere. I'm not sure how it happens. But this person ain't got a jacket on. He's got no helmet on this snowmobile. No shoes on. Bearing in mind it's minus 20 degrees. Yeah. This person's also covered in blood. He's got a really big swollen face. And then Uncle Randy realises that's my brother, Rolf. So Rolf, you look, you look confused, but Rolf 
tells Randy everything. Now... How is he not dead? The bullets that came out of this gun... Yeah. ...were birdshot bullets and the like, little pellets. So they do do damage, but... It's not like a proper bullet, is it? Rolf, no, Rolf is extremely lucky because, obviously, Beth and Kay got shot and they didn't survive. Yeah. But Rolf did, so he's obviously still very lucky and it's amazing that, you know... Anyway... I'm not Rolf, sure I'd say he's lucky to be alive. His fucking family and his cabin's on fire. Yeah. Um, Rolf says that he played dead and he tried to put out the fire, but to no avail. I think, like a lot of things, the adrenaline will have got him through coming down on that snowmobile. So, yeah. So, wow. So, Randy puts his brother in the car, starts calling 911, tells him everything, tells him about the girls, gives him a description of the car, and then he's obviously he needs help for his brother yeah. because he's been fucking shot in the face. These girls are driving down Canyon Road, and as they're driving down this road, a police car passes them, and this police car does a U-turn yeah. and starts following the car. Now... I don't know if it's Copper's nose or it had come through on the radio. Yeah, but he just knew to... Yeah. And we, one thing we have been watching is a lot of traffic cops. Police inspectors. It's, it's, it's amazing how the many amount times. of times they just go, hmm, that don't look right. Yeah, and they actually call it, don't they, the police nose? Yeah. You kind of get a feel. So Jam Jam and Frizzy are freaking out Yeah. because this cop has followed them. And they get into a high-speed chase of, you know, over 100 miles per hour. They actually force their way through a police roadblock, so it's a pretty... Massive chase. Yeah. The chase actually ended 65 kilometres away from the cabin, and eventually they lost control of the car and they span out. The men were arrested swiftly. Around the same time that these men were arrested, Rolf was airlifted to hospital and made a full recovery. Wow. So the police said what were left at cabin wasn't very much. There were there were blood everywhere. It had obviously been ransacked and they managed to find a video camera and the tape was still in the video camera. And that of course was recorded by Jam Jar and Frizzy from what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So that's what you can check out on YouTube if you want to. So, Jam Jar, this is 22-year-old Edward Deli. Frizzy is Von Taylor, and he's 26. They've both previously served time in the Utah State Pen. Jam Jar was in for arson, and Frizzy was in for aggravated burglary. So, Jam Jar and Frizzy met at a halfway house, somewhere where you get back on track. Yeah, basically when you've got nowhere else to go, that's where you get placed, in it, after prison? And on 14th of December, they just fucked off. They just left. Yeah. They hitchhiked to Oakley. Uh, apparently Frizzy's dad had a cabin up there and they spent a week robbing and doing whatever they fucking did. And they passed the Tida cabin on the 20th. So on the 20th is... The day that Kay, Claudia and Sean saw the man. Yeah. And that man was Frizzy. 
And what he was doing, he was, he was scoping out this cabin. Yeah, scoping out area. So they broke in on the 22nd of December. Like I said, they were there a few hours uh, before. Before family got back. Opening the fucking presents, laughing and... Knowing fine knowing, well. Knowing the names as well, because the names were on the fucking present. Yeah. And it, it's, it's bad, but do you know what it reminded me of? Bad Santa. <laughs> do you know when he fucking breaks in and he's having a shit and that? <laughs> so I've just wrote, Bad Santa. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jam Jam and Frizzy, they were charged with two counts of first degree murder, one count of attempted first degree murder, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to stop for police. Both pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, of course they fucking did. It were looked into and they were both deemed fit to stand trial. So five months later, Frizzy pleads guilty to two counts of capital murder if all the other charges are dropped, which is... I don't, I, Do you know what that is? Do you know I what I, I find about that. Do you know what I find this about? Fucking control. Even up until the last minute, it's a control thing. Because even though he knows he's guilty of all those crimes, I tell you what, to save you going through a massive trial, I'll plead guilty to two counts of murder if you drop all others. Let's be honest, the two counts of murder is going to get you far longer in prison than the rest anyway, yeah. but it's still about having that fucking control right up until end. So, at Frizz's sentencing, uh, the prosecution identified him as the ringleader of the two. He'd shown no remorse and he had shot the two women. Yeah. And Rolf. Kay had been shot five times, two times in the chest, one time in the side, one time in the shoulder, and one time in her upper arm. Beth, the grandma, had been shot three times, once in the chest, oh sorry, twice in the chest, and once in the head. And it said that this was done with a 44 cattle gun. What's brilliant about this is, allegedly, Frizzy had no idea that Rolf had survived. So when Rolf went into that car, oh, could you imagine? his face must have been a fucking picture. I bet his ass fell out. So Frizzy was sentenced to death. Good. Jamja was still pleading not guilty. And his defence team was saying that he was led on by Taylor. He'd refused or hesitated to kill Rolf. And he'd fetched in this dog for Lene to keep her company. It is strange behaviour, though, isn't it? Mm. And he did refuse to kill him. I'm not is. saying that he, he doesn't deserve to be in fucking jail because he does. Yeah. They found him guilty of second-degree murder and they sentenced him to life in prison with the possibility of parole. The Tida family actually sued the state because they said that they failed to detain these men and... It was known that these two men were in Oakley. So, the halfway house, Taylor had made a phone call to some guy in the halfway house and he'd said, oh, we've been fucking robbing and I've seen right. this stuff. It got reported, but nothing No, done. nothing got done. So, so the Tina family were fucking pissed off. And the, so the fucking should be. So, September of 92, it was ruled that the state of Utah wasn't responsible. There were laws in place to protect them, 
So, in 2001, Linnea got a letter from Jam Jar saying, sorry, all this bullshit. Mm. And Linnea pondered on it for 10 years and she wrote back and she ended up forgiving him. Okay. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Rolf went on to marry uh, a few times, I think. Uh, one of them being Kay's best friend. Fucking hell. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And sadly... Maybe died. he just really fucking missed his wife. Yeah. It said that the, the, the met in the early 20s, mm-hmm. they fell madly in love and they married and that were it. That were their life. In some sort of way, it were him being close. Close to his wife. Don't you be fucking marrying my best mate if I die, mate. <laughs> sadly, he died in 2008 from cancer. Um, Trisha and Lene, they've gone on to marry, um, I think, one or both from have been divorced. Not that it matters, they've got kids, same with Sean. Yeah. And they actually rebuilt the cabin and they still How do they still there. go? Jam I suppose Jar. it's a way of being close to her as well, isn't it? Jamja apparently has not appealed. Now, Frizzy has, fa- has appealed and failed three times. But, before I end the case, a federal judge has overturned the death sentence that was given to inmate Von Lester Taylor after he was convicted for two Summit County murders that occurred 29 years ago. This is March 2020. Fucking hell. In her ruling last week, Judge Turner says Taylor did not get an adequate defence from his public defender which led to Taylor's guilty plea and his sentence to death row. So there's some more information that you can look up, but... <sighs> that's it, that's the team. Poor family. Oh, it's not often, it is not often that you come across a case that is that affects the family in that sort of malitude. Oh, yeah. Like, obviously, it, it must be horrific when one of your family members get murdered or a part of a serial killer, do you know what I mean? But, like, for your family to be just going on a, a yearly trip that you always go on... Always go on. And, and something then, horrific happening. Yeah, like that. And then for him to rebuild the cabin and not letting... They've not let them win, have they? They've not yeah. let them win. It's, it's still their tradition. I was, I was blown away by Rolf. Surviving? Surviving. Well, you saw my face. Yeah. I was like, what? Dragging himself down... Oh, yeah. Hill in, in that 20, cold. No clothes on hardly. Yeah. And I bet when he walked into that courtroom, it were a big fuck you. 100%. I'm going to watch that video. So I hope you've enjoyed. Terrifying and Twisted. Episode 20. And this one should be out on time. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> we give each of a thumbs up there. We're so fucking sad. Um... I hope you all have a lovely weekend. It will be over by the time this is out. Yeah. But I hope whatever you're doing, you have a lovely weekend and we will be back in two weeks. See you in two. See you soon.